This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. A diagnosis of cancer often comes with questions, lots of them. And naturally, these days, people turn to the Internet for answers. But it turns out hopping online for this kind of info can do more harm than good. Lacey Horta from the Canadian Cancer Society will tell us why. Plus, we're coming up to April the 9th, which has been declared as Vimy Ridge Day, a day to commemorate the momentous First World War battle where the Canadian Corps fought together for the first time. This year marks the 99th anniversary of that historic battle. Christopher Sweeney, chair of the Vimy Foundation, will talk about why it's important to preserve and promote this legacy. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The Trudeau government is providing $62.25 million to support five research networks exploring the issue of chronic disease. The Canadian Institutes for Health Research say these networks will connect researchers, health professionals, policymakers and patients across the country to improve the health of those living with those diseases. The areas of research include diabetes, chronic pain and kidney disease. The networks will work to speed up translating research findings into treatment and patients will be closely involved to ensure that the work focuses on what matters to them. You'd think that being careful, understanding, and able to settle arguments would be good qualities to have in the workplace. But it turns out these traits are considered old and can be a turnoff for potential employers. That according to a new study published in the Journal of Social Issues. Researchers at the University of Kent created two equally qualified job applicants, but gave one stereotypically old characteristics and the other stereotypically young characteristics. Old characteristics were defined as good at understanding others' views and settling arguments, while young characteristics were described as good at IT and creative. The researchers then surveyed potential employers and asked which candidate they would hire. They didn't disclose their ages, they only shared their skills. More than 70% of the participants favored the young profile. The study's authors say this has serious implications for the fair chances of older workers to gain employment in new roles or workplaces. She won an Oscar for her portrayal of Helen Keller in the film The Miracle Worker when she was just 16 years old. This week, Patty Duke passed away at the age of 69. In addition to playing the role of Keller, Duke also starred in The Patty Duke Show, where she played the roles of identical teenage cousins. The show ran for three seasons, and Duke was nominated for an Emmy in 1964. 
Three years later, she countered her squeaky clean image playing a pill-popping alcoholic in Valley of the Dolls. She wrote an emotional 1989 autobiography, Call Me Anna, in which she revealed she'd suffered for years with manic depression. It was later adapted for a TV movie that she also produced and starred in. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a scenario that plays out thousands of times across the country. Someone gets a diagnosis of cancer, but after they hear the word cancer, they don't hear anything else. So they turn to the Internet to answer the questions they should have asked in the doctor's office. A new study finds that this can leave patients and their families feeling confused and overwhelmed. I spoke with Lacey Horta of the Canadian Cancer Society. They seem to be getting search engine overload um, because they're finding, you know, quite a, there's quite a lot out there, um, not always the most reliable sources out there. They could be looking at information kind of from all over. Um, so they're feeling kind of often more stressed out, uh, more worried about things. Um, and, you know, we really feel that people could really avoid that search engine overload by calling the Cancer Society's information service, uh, where they could speak to an information specialist at no cost uh, regarding their questions. They can kind of help answer their questions, point them in the direction of, um, you know, other resources that might be more helpful. Canadian resources, our website at cancer.ca, so that they can get information that just kind of make that they can feel better about and come up with a plan kind of on how to proceed for their health. Is it usually people who've been diagnosed? Is it their family members? It tends to be both who are researching cancer often, um, as well as the general public who are kind of uh, have questions just about screening, about diagnosis, all of that. So they're turning to the internet, not always getting great information. And then, um, and the reason why they're doing that is they're just finding that it's hard to access a member from their healthcare team or doctor. It's hard, and when they do, they might forget to ask something, right? That's right. And a lot of people who access our service at the Cancer Information Service tell us that, you know, after they're diagnosed with cancer, um, sometimes they don't really hear anything else that the doctor said in their appointment. Um, So many times when people call us, they're really looking for really general, um, basic information about the cancer diagnosis that they have, Um, and they're looking for help in kind of, what, what should I do since I didn't really hear anything else after, you know, they mentioned the diagnosis. Now, I am involved uh, with Pancreatic Cancer Canada. I'm on the board of directors. We also have an info line. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we tell people is, and that doctors tell people is, don't go to the internet. And the reason is that it's pretty dismal news out there. The survival rate is terrible, and that's all people see. Mm -hmm. But I guess on the other hand, I mean, that is the reality of it. Well, certainly, I mean, when people call us, often, sometimes they are looking for information that is, you know, harder to take, right? Information about, like you mentioned, about um, prognosis and things like that. But the benefit to calling and talking to someone rather than going on the Internet and reading it is that they can talk to you about, um, you know, how the prognosis is figured out. They can talk to you about how your general health factors play in. They can provide you support. They can, you know, let you know kind of about clinical trials. They can let you know about how things have changed, um, in cancer research over the years. Um, so it's, it's a lot nicer to have the support of getting the information from someone personally rather than reading it on the, on the computer screen, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it can be pretty devastating, you know, when you're looking at a cancer and it has a survival rate in the single digits. Uh, I, I remember my doctor saying 
the survival rate is the survival rate in your case is your case. Is that what your specialists tell people? I would say so. I would say that people really do encourage, uh, our information specialists encourage people to talk to the doctor about their own unique circumstances. Um, and, you know, we also talk about, you know, how important it is uh, when cancer is found early. We talked about, you know, uh, different opportunities for treatment and also just give support for people who are living with cancer also. Do you get questions, for example, for referrals to specialists in certain areas of cancer care? Um, people do call with questions like that, and uh, we are able to provide them with some resources in order to find specialists in different areas. Um, people call with very practical questions often as well. I mean, a, a lot of issues that people call us with are just basic needs in terms of, you know, how am I going to get to my treatment? Um, and, you know, one of the things that we can do is help them to find out about services in their in their community to get to treatment. Um, and then, you know, from talking to them, we find out kind of the more complex questions they have, you know, regarding treatment, different treatment options. Um, you know, they're trying to make decisions about what they should do. And, you know, an information specialist is a great person to kind of talk out that information with. And oftentimes, you know, that information can really help people to have really informed conversations with their doctors about where to go next. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, when I was diagnosed with my first cancer, I knew very little about it. And that was the one thing that I found very difficult is that there was this barrage of information that was complicated and that you had to take in. And because, uh, you know, in that case, it was breast cancer and, and there are a lot of options mm-hmm. for breast cancer, you know, the doctors were basically saying, you choose, this is your choice. And I think, well, oh my goodness, you know, how do you choose from this complicated sort of menu of, of information? Absolutely. Many people do call us and let us know, you know, I was given the option to have surgery and and radiation or just the option to have radiation and and they're not sure what to do. So it'll help them come up with questions for their doctors, which is a really helpful part of our service. Um, Oftentimes people are just not sure what to ask um, and, and they find that really nice to be able to kind of, okay, they write them down and bring them with them. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. I've been speaking with Lacey Horta of the Canadian Cancer Society. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. April 9th will mark the 99th anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Christopher Sweeney, chair of the Vimy Foundation, a group devoted to preserving and promoting the memory of this important moment in Canadian history. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. It was Easter Monday 99 years ago. On April 9, 1917, four Canadian divisions fighting together for the first time captured the strategic Vimy Ridge in a battle that was previously thought to be unwinnable. The cost, more than 10,000 dead and wounded. The Canadian success at Vimy Ridge marked a profound turning point for the Allies and a milestone in our development as a nation. Christopher Sweeney, chairman of the Vimy Foundation, dropped by our studios. On April 9th, uh, 1917, uh, the Canadian forces were gathered together for the first time as a united fighting force. There was uh, 100,000 strong, and uh, we were charged with... uh, taking a uh, a German defensive position, which uh, seemed impregnable. 
uh, over the preceding three years, 150,000 British and French soldiers had been killed trying to take this ridge. And Canadians were assigned it. And uh, they were able to achieve the unachievable and took the ridge with, by the standards of the day, relatively minor losses. However, uh, there were almost 4,000 boys killed over the three days of the battle. And it remains Canada's bloodiest day. Why was it thought to be impossible to take this position? These Germans were well entrenched in a series of trenches and barbed wire and machine gun nests. It was simply the, 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 the position that they had. They had three years to build up this defense. And so it really it was thought that it was Im- impossible to, to penetrate it and to take the position. When the Canadians were assigned to this task, General Curry was assigned with trying to figure out how to accomplish this, uh, this task. He said, we're, we're going to analyze this project and we're going to take our time. We're going to rehearse uh, how we're going to take this ridge. Uh, we're going to brief uh, all of the soldiers on what their, what their chore is of, of, of the day, which was unheard of. It was a shining example of Canadian leadership, uh, Canadian teamwork, Canadian innovation, which secured the day for us. Why was the ridge considered so strategically important? Well, because it was the highest position uh, in the surrounding area. What changed at Vimy was the way that others perceived Canadian soldiers and the way that Canadians at home perceived themselves. We had accomplished what the serious powers of France and uh, Britain had been unable to attain. And I would argue that it was the first time that the world took notice of Canada as being an independent entity from Britain. Back to what you were telling me before about the Canadian soldiers getting instructions and rehearsing. Do you think that was a result of a different ideas about class differences? Yes, there were, that definitely played a role in it. It was uh, often observed with some skepticism by British officers how Canadian soldiers did not necessarily salute Canadian officers when they were being passed by in, in the trenches. And so, yeah, there was a, less of a class differential. And also, you know, it, a General uh, Curry, who was the leader of the Canadian troops uh, at uh, Vimy, he was a, an insurance uh, broker back in Canada uh, who had been part of the reserve forces, but through his abilities uh, and successes uh, working within the British Army, he had risen to a rank of general uh, in three short years. This was unheard of in the British Army. You had to have come from blue blood or know somebody who's blue-blooded to, to rise to that rank. And so there was something that was, it was more of the, the common man, and he, he was greatly admired by the Canadian troops for the fact that he was one of them. The Canadian troops, were they mostly farm boys? What was their class make? Well, the Canadians really were soldiers coming from coast to coast to coast. The pictures that we have of them tend to be homogeneously white young men, but it was really, it's much more complex than that. And if you dig deep enough, you see pictures of Sikh Canadians, you see pictures of Japanese Canadians, you see pictures of African Canadians. In the First World War. In the First World War. Yeah, and I, it's it's there should be we're trying to make much more of that, and we're working with various groups within Canada to raise uh, awareness of that their ancestors. It wasn't just you know Brits or or or, or ex Brits who fought in this. It was it was all Canadian boys. There was a uh, First Nation uh, members did a tremendous job. They were amongst the most successful snipers of the entire British Army. How important do you think this battle was to the formation of Canadian identity? I think it was crucial. Canadians love it when others pay attention to us. 
And uh, the front, uh, the banner of the New York Herald said, Canadians take Vimy Ridge. And British newspapers carried it. And so the, the whole world really took notice. And so others looked at us differently, and we looked at ourselves differently. We were able to do something on the world stage. I like to tell the story that at the peace treaty, of uh, the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, which put a, an end to the war in 1919, it was expected that Britain would sign on behalf of its colonies. And the major colonies uh, of Canada, Australia, South Africa, India, uh, New Zealand uh, said, you know, we're signing on our own behalf. And this, this was led by the Canadian Prime Minister, uh, saying, no, 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 we, we've, we've lost 60,000 boys. We've spent an absolute fortune. Uh, we've realigned our entire economy. Uh, we now have you know, one of the larger navies in the world. We are not going to be uh, sitting in the side room while Britain signs on our behalf. We are signing that bloody document ourselves. And that was the first international treaty that Canada had signed on its own behalf. How do you want people to mark April the 9th? Well, the, uh, there's the Vimy pin, uh, which we created a few years ago, and there's about 150,000 people wearing it out there. We would love if every April 9th, Canadians wore the Vimy pin as they wear the poppy on November 11th. We see April 9th as being, it's a, it's a moment of celebration and not necessarily commemoration. Vimy is really, it's about the First World War, it's about success, it's about the birth of, uh, of Canada. But also we want Canadians to think about trying to get over to Vimy, France for the 100th anniversary next year. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Christopher Sweeney is the chairman of the Vimy Foundation. You can find them online at vimyfoundation.ca. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. He was one of the greatest soul voices of the 20th century, but his life was cut tragically short. In just a moment, we'll pay tribute to Marvin Gaye. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your International Arts Date Book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, the musical Bright Star has opened on Broadway, featuring music by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. You got the look, you got the feel, you got the face of truth. Bright Star is on stage at the Court Theatre. Some 3,000 cherry trees are in full bloom at the Tidal Basin in Washington for the annual National Cherry Blossom Festival, which includes events promoting traditional and contemporary arts and culture. In London, England, the musical War of the Worlds has taken over the Dominion Theatre, presenting a more modern take on H.G. Wells' Martian Invasion classic. The show is Jeff Wayne's musical version of Orson Welles' famous 1938 radio play. Wayne is an American music producer who spent much of his career in Britain. And after two years of preparation, an ambitious cross-cultural art exhibit has opened at Singapore's new National Gallery. The gallery and the Pompidou Center in Paris collaborated on an exhibition featuring works from European masters and famous Southeast Asian artists. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This weekend marks the anniversary of the birth of one of the greatest soul voices of the 20th century, Marvin Gaye. Sadly, it also marks the anniversary of his death. 
Marvin Gaye was born on April 2, 1939. He would go on to become one of Motown's most successful artists. His 1960s hits include songs like How Sweet It Is, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, Can I Get a Witness, and I Heard It Through the Grapevine. The 1970s saw Marvin Gaye mature as a singer and songwriter. In 1971, he released What's Going On, a now iconic album. Along with the eponymous single, it also featured Mercy, Mercy Me, God is Love, and Inner City Blues. Gaye continued to write and record music all through the 70s and into the 80s, including his 1982 hit, Sexual Healing. However, his life was tragically cut short, on the eve of his birthday, April 1st, 1984. He was with his mother and father when an argument broke out between the two, and Marvin stepped in to stop it. His father pulled a gun and shot Marvin twice, once in the heart and once in the shoulder. A powerful voice was silenced that day. Today we'll remember Marvin Gaye with one of his early Motown hits. Here is How Sweet It Is. That was Marvin Gaye with How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. Gaye was born on April 2nd, 1939. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.